So welcome to Discourse, a feature for the Religious Studies Project, where we discuss religion's emergence in the news. And this month, the Religious Studies Project as a whole is looking at nature and the environment. So we'll have something of a green theme to the stories that we have collected. Uh, I am hosting this episode. My name is Michael Munnick, and I'm a lecturer in social science theories and methods at Cardiff University in Cardiff, Wales, in the UK, working with the Centre for the Study of Islam in the UK. And we have two guests joining us. Suzanne, do you want to introduce yourself? Yes, I am Suzanne Owen, and I'm a reader in study of religion at Leeds Trinity University in Yorkshire in the UK. And I research um, the category of religion in various guises and particularly in pagan groups, and also I research um, some indigeneity topics as well, indigenous religion as a category as well. Great. And also we have Dan. Dan, go ahead. Hello, my name is Dan Gorman. I'm a history PhD candidate at the University of Rochester. Um, My research currently is about spiritualism, its relationship to the broader transcendental liberal religious climate of New England, and um, hoping to work a little science and religion in there as well, but I haven't gotten to that chapter yet of my dissertation. Um, And I'm also interested in urban religion, even though that's not the subject of my dissertation. Great. And I forgot to mention, but my research specialism revolves around journalism and news media and religion, and specifically uh, the religious um, dimensions of journalism practice, so less about religion's content in there, but the people who produce it, both sources and journalists. And I look a lot at Muslims in Britain right now. Obviously a hot topic for the news, but what we're thinking about is, say, is the environment and nature instead. And Suzanne, maybe do you want to kick us off with uh, what you had been observing about how the environment is framed in some news organizations? Yes, as I was looking at the recent stories on the environment and nature, I realized that most of the online news um, newspapers do not have a tab or a section, especially for the environment or nature or anything related to that, apart from The Guardian, which has a section called The Environment, and The Independent, which has a section called Climate. And I checked a number of other broadsheet, what we call broadsheet papers, which are the mainstream newspapers um, like The Telegraph, The Times, um, and also a couple in the U.S., The New York Times and The San Francisco Chronicle. And none of them had a a separate section. So you would find, presumably you would find environment stories buried under a science-type category or some other type of category, but not anything dedicated to the environment or climate. And, And it's interesting that the choice of The title of the section, um, the Guardian one, which is on the environment, um, is uh, is obviously a broader category. And the type of stories that it has, the ones today, I'm having it just open just now, there's one about um, whether frozen wind turbines are to blame for Texas power outages, of all things. Oh, no, sorry, this is the independent one, sorry. I want to start with the Guardian one, which is on the environment. Their lead story is on air pollution, um, raising the risk of infertility, 
Um, there's also about uh, the carbon footprints of um, um, various sort of, yeah, of a, um, the OECD chief. I'm not quite sure what OECD is. Let me think what that is. Um, but it's, it's um, obviously an environmental organization for economic cooperation and development. That's right. Um, and, um, and then there's various things to do with um, country life, like gone fishing and plant watch, country diary, and those kinds of things, green e economics. So lots of sort of, I guess, um, lifestyle kind of type of stories. And that's the Guardian one. Now, the Independent chose the word climate as their section, which is really focused and really um, telling, I think. And it gives an indication of um, their kind of outlook. And indeed, there is a, a story on climate change behind extinction of North America's largest animals, a study. Um, there is uh, a story about um, the arrest of the activist in India, that's connected to Greta Thunberg and uh, and about the biggest emitters should pay carbon taxes and various things like that. So it is definitely much more hard hitting, much more sort of into, I guess, the political side of the environment. Um, so, yeah, there is a different tone, I think, from The Guardian in that sense. Um, have you have the other two got any comments on? The, the newspaper reporting or media reporting of the environment that you've observed? Sure. Well, I was interested in the, the notion of stewardship and how that comes in. And when you were initially letting us know about how these ideas are, are framed, it was interesting that you had taught an idea not necessarily seen in the uh, uh, um the immediate stories today, but that there is a, a sort of a positive outlook on the Guardian's reporting, thinking about possible futures mm. and uh, uh, big dreams, whereas on the independent, they're aggregating, it was very much kind of a, that, you know, environmental negativity, you know, and thinking about the cost that human uh, activity is having on the planet. Um, and I wonder about, you know, the where religious ideas fit in that and this notion of stewardship and how to, to, to bring forward messages uh, um, to encourage people and their behavior uh, or perhaps to discourage them. And maybe that sort of indicates mm -hmm. something in that, that separate focus for that. Um, a question that I often ask my students uh, at Cardiff, I teach an undergraduate module in religion in the news and uh, asking them about what the role of the media should be, you know, it, sometimes their analysis of coverage of a particular religion will be, oh, well, they make the church look bad by reporting the story. And I said, well, is it the church, is the, the journalism's job to make the church look good? Uh, so when it comes to environmental action, I wonder about that same question. Is it the journalist's job to make us compelled to think more carefully about the environment and our stewardship and our activity? Is it their job to make us recognize the the bleakness of the situation that we might be in i don't know have a thoughts on what the 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 expected role of journalism should be in in this regard well i actually had a question for suzanne mm. if you could speak a little more about 
um, the political alignment of those two newspapers. I oh, mean, yes. the Guardian has really the Guardian has really expanded its footprint here in the United States, but I'm not that familiar with the Independence work. Yeah, it's it's quite interesting because a lot of other papers are connected to like Murdoch Empire and things like that, but these two are not. Um, the Guardian is a very interesting history because it was set up by people sympathetic with the Liberal Party in the UK, which no longer exists, but the reincarnation of that is the Liberal Democrats. So, but their aims were to, you know, were connected to that and it's run by trustees. So it's not got that kind of corporate ownership that other newspapers have, but the aims are definitely towards the Liberal Democrat end of politics. A lot of people regard them as left wing, but actually they are highly critical of the left, I would say. Um, although they do have individual um, you know, commentators in, in their newspaper who are left wing, such as Owen Jones. He's probably getting more well known beyond Britain, but he's quite left wing. He was a supporter of Jeremy Corbyn when he was leader of the Labour Party. Um, but it has a wide range of views in the paper, you know, from the more sort of liberal, I guess, uh, conservative end, maybe not so conservative, but certainly more middle of the road, I would say. Now, the Independent was is owned by a Russian, but um, I'm not sure how much interference he has with the editor. The editors tend to be uh, fairly balanced, I think probably more towards the left, but not maybe not overtly, at least not to me. There might be to someone who's more conservative in their outlook. But they seem to be, um, they were, they formed, they're the youngest of these types of newspapers and that they formed in order to try to be non-biased. But of course, you know, that's an ideal that's not likely in the media anyway. Um, <laughs> but um, but it, it, as I say with the stories, as I when I first looked at the differences between these two papers a couple of days ago, it was much more apparent that the um, Guardian was more positive in its outlook towards, um, yeah, sort of feel-good environment stories alongside the kind of more informative, critical stories about, you know, making it feel that perhaps a middle-class person, because to be fair, the Guardian is usually read by people in the middle classes, and feel that they have maybe some agency and they can do something like recycle their, you know, tin cans or something. And the independent, I think is yeah, m much more about critical issues in um, the climate and environment. Something else that interests me about those two papers is that again, the market they're going for, I think is also a very, tech savvy ones they're trying to be current with that in ways that some other organizations aren't um the guardian still has a print newspaper but its circulation in the print mm. is very very low compared to mm. other newspapers uh but they have a huge global reach and part of that is because they're owned by a trust uh they don't have a paywall they don't use a paywall for protecting their articles so where a lot of other of the dailies mm. in britain have moved to requiring someone to subscribe and to pay online in order to access material that the guardian doesn't and so they they have that international reach because 
they offer their new service to the world. The Independent, um, very interestingly, stopped its print run a few years ago, and went. They're the first major daily newspaper in Britain to go completely it's online. Nice. Yeah. Uh, the results of that experiment are still, I think, to be seen. Uh, when we go to journalism conferences and uh, have discussions with scholars about it, they're they're waiting to see what this will mean and what changes it brings on. And I, mm-hmm. I think they have gone to a kind of a premium service for some of their articles. Some stuff is available online, and other stuff you have to pay or be a registered user for. So they're trying to figure out how their model can work uh, in online spaces. But what's important, I think, is that both of these news organizations have invested in online as the way to deliver their news primarily. Mm-hmm. And that may speak as well then to their idea of making climate or the environment one of the points of focus, because that's where maybe a lot of that activity is happening. And maybe also they don't need to be bound by traditional sections in the way that a print newspaper has been. And so they can put tags up, lots of tags like environment and climate, like religion, for example. The, the Guardian's one of the few that still has a religion tab in the same way they have this environment one so that um, people could click on that and find the, the raft of stories they've published about this topic. Part of the reason why I asked about the political affiliations is that it seems to me that there isn't there isn't a single tone regarding climate change in the environment that you can find with either liberal liberal or conservative positions. So for example, among liberals writing about climate change, you can get some very pessimistic writing talking about, we need to understand the scale of the crisis, the severity of the crisis, what it's doing to the planet. But then you also get what Suzanne's been talking about with the guardian of sort of this I don't want to say leftist, but this sort of progressive, you know, we can do something about this. We can solve the crisis. And then on the right, on the political right, I've seen both pretending that everything's fine, you know, and these various poorly argued, I think, but sticky arguments about, oh, why there's no real climate change or fossil Mm -hmm. fuels are overrated. But then there's also a strain of conservatism that isn't featured as much in the media that is sort of fatalistic and saying, well, it, it is what it is. And there's, you know, I don't know if that dovetails necessarily with Christian dominion thinking this idea that the, yeah. the environment is ours to master and harness, but yes, I don't know. I do, I do find it interesting how both liberal and conservative, it can skew in multiple, multiple tones. Yes. It was significant to me that the two papers that I found in the UK that did have those sections were those that were more left-leaning or progressive is probably a better word, as you say, because and I'm never really sure sometimes where they stand on certain political issues, but they are progressive in their outlook. Yeah. Well, thinking about progressive politics and left-leaning politics, I'm wondering, Dan, if we could transition a story that you wanted to bring up, which was about Joe Biden and yes. uh, the Catholic values coming through in uh, the trajectory that he's setting for his administration. Do you want to share us a bit of what you had discussed sure. there? The article I was looking at was called In Biden's Catholic Face and Ascendant Liberal Christianity by Elizabeth Diaz from the New York Times. This ran about three weeks ago, so shortly after Biden's inauguration. And the story opens with the anecdote of President Biden going to mass a couple hours before he was sworn into office and the priest, Father Kevin O'Brien, reminding him to follow the commands of Jesus to look after the poor. Um, And it's an interesting moment because on the one hand, the priest is saying, yes, you've you've said these things that sound a bit that sound Christian in your race. Now that you're in office, stick to that young man. But um, 
But it's an interesting article because it talks about, not exclusively in regard to the environment, but more broadly, how Biden is committed to a liberal Christianity. And that's not something that we have heard much about in recent years in the United States, at least in national politics. Now, yes, the Clintons were Protestants. Obama was a Protestant, although he didn't go to church often. The the difference is that Joe Biden is visibly openly Catholic. He goes to mass regularly, even during the pandemic. He's the second Catholic president. And again, he's, he's taking, he's trying to steer Catholicism in a direction of working on social issues and not so much cultural issues um, like abortion, gay marriage. Um, He's the article notes the parallels between Biden and of course the Pope who is Pope Francis's commitment to climate change. The article does not mention Laudato Si, um, the climate change encyclical, although it does talk about Biden's um, interest in St. Augustine and this idea of that we should base our politics in love and love for our community, love for the environment. So that's, it, it's, it touches on a lot of themes and I wish it talked about the climate aspect in a little more detail, but it is interesting to see sort of this Vatican white house alignment on climate thinking. Yeah. I was interested in that. Um, thinking about Biden as only the second Catholic president the United States has had. And who the previous Catholic president was was JFK, who was you know right. uh, in the the chair during a lot of progressive change again in the United States, and how interesting that is because it sits against what I think a lot of people would assume about Catholic politics and how it relates to it. That is very much about you know concerns about human sexuality and about abortion, uh, family, you know the the social conservative politics that we understand and often associate with the religious right. Um, so it. it I don't know, do you think it's that people forget that this progressive Catholicism Hmm. is uh, a deep strain within the tradition and and its expression in the United States? Or is it just a, a, I don't know, luck of the draw in that sense that the two times that uh, um, a a Catholic, confessed Catholic has been in that chair, that this has been their party and this has been their set of priorities? Well, I don't know if I'd qualify Kennedy as a progressive, but setting that aside, um, I do think religious liberalism is not popularly associated with the Catholic Church anymore. Now, there are there are caveats to that. Um, there are still um, groups, particularly uh, American nuns, who are known for sort of liberal politics, um, and they gain some media attention. But of course, there are fewer nuns than there were a couple decades ago. So the idea, I. I think the presence of nuns in American life, and it's not something that I think a lot of people my age and younger think about, even though, of course, there are still sisterhoods in the United States. Also, the days of Daniel Berrigan, the radical priest out protesting the Vietnam War, that was decades ago. Um, I think as a result of that, because we have fewer high-profile progressive Catholic leaders, I mean, and by leaders, I mean clerics, as well as lay people. I don't think religious liberalism is popularly associated with the church. I think it is, and into that void, you get the voices of people who oppose gay marriage, who oppose abortion, um, who oppose birth control even. And I do think, though, it's worth distinguishing the institutional Catholic church from the large swaths of the American Catholic public who disagree with the church's teachings. But I do think that the default has been for the media for some time to assume 
um, Catholicism in America is conservative with these occasional pop-ups like the nuns who got in trouble for, um, with Pope Benedict for being too, uh, too progressive in their politics. How much do you think it might be that the current Pope is interested in the environment or at least in climate change that maybe Biden has been quick to, you know, rejoin the Paris agreement and various other things. Or is this sort of just parallel that they just seem to be on that side of the same thinking? I don't think it's an accident. Um, I think this is an interesting question because I don't know enough about Biden's political history to know when he first started talking about climate issues. It would be very interesting to go back and see, you know, put Vatican statements about climate alongside (laughs) Joe Biden's and see if he became more vocal after Laudato Si was published. Um, Yeah. I find, I find it hard not to think the Pope has influenced his thinking on this. Um, It's helped to maybe validate the issue as an important one. Yes, I think so. One thing, and I'm I'm all the most loath to say this because I don't want to put ideas in the trolls' heads, but I wonder if the similarity in the Pope and President Biden's climate views will resurrect anti-Catholic sentiments on at least some parts of the political right. When John Kennedy was president, when he was running for president, there were accusations that the Vatican would be dictating American politics. Mm-hmm. And now that we've seen the rise of conspiracy thought, it's always been there, but now that it's been sort of unleashed on the political right, I wonder if people are going to accuse him of taking orders from Pope Francis. This was exactly what I was thinking as well, that if you know if they start to disagree with some of this, then that accusation will rise, I'm sure. It has, you know, in, in other considerations. I mean, even when Blair, Tony Blair, the former prime minister of UK, he wasn't Catholic while he was in office, but his family was, but he became Catholic afterwards. And there was even sort of that fear of, uh, I guess it's still a problem in the UK about. Um, <laughs> it is, it is tricky in the political. It, it's tricky in the American political right because for more than 40 years now, evangelical Christians in the Republican Party have forged a cultural alliance with conservative Catholics. So. And again, there's a lot of subgroups within each of these factions, but it could get very tricky if anti-Catholicism resurfaces among segments of the Republican Party that could endanger their alliance with the Catholic Church on the abortion and gay marriage issues. Yeah, I don't know if either you watched that Mrs. America program that was that uh, a television drama about the Equal Rights Act uh, through the 1970s. Um, Kate Blanchett was a producer as well as uh, acting in this program, and uh, it was telling the story, among many other things, of uh, Phyllis Schlafly, who is uh, um, this activist, Catholic activist uh, uh, in the Chicago area, and started out as very much concerned about Cold War politics and nuclear threat, uh, but realized early in the game uh, that the wind was shifting and turned to... uh, um, you know, we'll say domestic politics. He was really concerned about uh, um, women's rights for work and recognition, but building those alliances with evangelical Protestant voices to build a coalition that could ultimately be useful for uh, the team that became Team Reagan and brought uh, Reagan in in, in uh, the 1980s. So that was an interesting uh, um, 
you saw sort of the the, the discomfort that was there uh, between these two camps, but finding ways to, to build those bridges for a political benefit. Uh, um, so it'd be interesting if that is threatened in, in this presidency where we can see so clearly that the, the affiliation with a party doesn't need to match with one's affiliation to a denomination, that those no. lines can cut across. Well, and, and again, I don't want to... I don't want to claim the Republican Party is anti-Catholic. If anything, I think at this point, the Republican Party is very pro-Catholic. Several of their Supreme Court justices are Catholic at this point. But considering the amount of invective and conspiracy theory that's been thrown at Joe Biden in just three weeks, I feel like at some point, someone, someone on the internet is going to write something unpleasant about Catholicism and climate change in regard to Joe Biden. Interesting. Well, thinking about national politics in another setting, I wonder if we could move the conversation to India and the farmers' protests, which was a story that I was interested in. And I think, again, it's where we're seeing the mobilization of religious identities uh, as, you know, how they, in this case, are rather than potentially can be made use of for political gain. Um, this story, for those listeners who aren't familiar with it, has been going on for a few months now in India, and protests about changes to agricultural bills, uh, which are very much affecting farming communities, especially in the Punjab, one of the states mm -hmm. in India. And so they've been protesting in Delhi, in the capital. Um, on the face of it, we can see how this connects to the environment uh, theme, which we're talking about, because this is about agricultural reform for, um, there are environmental aspects to reforms that may be beneficial for India, but also social harms uh, and worries among farmers that this is, although the bills will structure the industry in a particular way that maybe prevents the stagnation that's been happening, it'll also open up space for market uh, prices to favor agribusiness at the expense of individual farmers. That's the kind of the, 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 the what it's about. But how this has been playing as about this being largely an area where there's a Sikh population in the Punjab, that this is inordinately affecting members from that religious community and their resistance to the government uh, which is the, the BJP government currently uh, under Narendra Modi, uh, largely seen as a Hindu nationalist government. And so um, we have Hindu identity being uh, uh, put up against what's now seen as um, this Sikh opposition that hadn't been there before. Um, phrases that have been used against these protesters about Khalistani uh, terrorists. And I don't know if that phrase is meaningful for you in the, the sense that, uh, um, especially in the 1980s, uh, uh, there is a um, very difficult, fractious relations between uh, Sikhs and Hindus in India uh, and people advocating for the establishment of a Sikh national state separate from India, another partition, if you will. And I was interested in this story because uh, it, it connects to things um, that are already in discussion about India, it hadn't been targeting Sikh populations, but largely Muslim populations that were being uh, exposed. A year ago, there were big protests in India uh, related to what they call the Citizen Amendment Act. And yeah, that was that. where uh, um, Indian citizenship was basically being redrafted so that uh, 
with very overt statements from Modi that this wouldn't be affecting any of listing a bunch of religious populations that would be not harmed in this, Christians, Buddhists, Jains, Sikhs, Parsis, but excluding reference to Islam in that, so that the Muslims were feeling that they would be uh, outside of this citizenship amendment and therefore having a, a second-tier citizenry in, in the country that they've been living in. So is for me an example of religion's fusion with state politics and interesting how and when the government draws on religious markers to take a, a swipe at those who are opposing them on what are political uh, grounds. I don't know if you had any thoughts on the, the, the stories that I was mm. noting and sharing. I think, yeah, I mean, Modi's government is aligned with that kind of sentiment, you know, with a pro-Hindu nationalist perspective, um, and that the farmers are mainly Sikh. It is going to play out in some form in terms of his sympathies or willingness to hear out, I, I expect. I think the additional issues, the political status of Punjab is always a bit contested in any case. And I'm, and I'm really sort of interested to see which way Modi is going to go because it depends on how important it is to have the Punjab in that sense. And, and I think it's going to be very important. Obviously, it's a very important um, agricultural region. And I'd be surprised if he doesn't change his tone. And Do you think it's possible that uh, a secession movement would grow from this? I don't. Um, I think it's because it brings into the whole sort of Punjab issue as well, or it could do. And I think this is where he may have to be more cautious in how he responds. Although at the moment there's not been any sign of that. In fact, the opposite. No, very much the yeah. the, the strongman politics that we've come to expect from him. Well, I was I was thinking about coverage I saw of the strikes a few weeks ago, saying that it's now at this point the largest strike in human history. Two hundred and fifty million people um, wow. joining it. So obviously, this movement, the farmers' protest, is bigger than just um, just the Sikh population, which isn't which is. Oh, I don't know the. Do you know the number of the Sikh population in India? Is it several million? I actually don't. I think two um, percent according could... to the article. Okay, um, but, but so obviously, I, I find it interesting. Yeah. The movement, the movement that's happening, is bigger than just Sikhism. There are Hindus and presumably Jains and even Christian farmers protesting. But I was curious if you could speak a little more about the role of Sikhism. Do you find that Sikhism and Sikh farmers are the sort of the leaders of this movement? Are they just one voice among many? Yeah, I think something like sixty percent of the uh, the protesters have been identifiably Sikh. So there is a, that is a, a a large character of the protesting population, and I think that's largely about geography, uh, maybe a bit about the kinds of professions people are in. But uh, agriculture is, is is such a huge industry in India. I mean, uh, the the agribusiness isn't there as it is in, for example, the United States. And so you have a lot of small rural landholders. Uh, a huge amount of the population is involved in the industry. So it will affect more than just that segment of the population. And that 
partly is, I think, why the protest is wider than just within this community and that obviously everyone needs to eat. So your your food source uh, um, can make you very agnostic or maybe pluralistic uh, in, in that regard. Um, it's just also interesting to me that although that has uh, uh, been the character of the protesters, I don't think that they have largely marshaled that identity themselves in in the in how they've been articulating their their protest. They've been initially as it was focused on the bills on the the economic justice side that what have you. Um, when there was a a, a greater uprising. Uh, um, uh, recently, just at the end of January, at that point, there were some of the protesters who were using this Khalistani flag as an image for the, uh, to attach to their reactions. And that gave the government something to react against. So the, the question is how wide, how reflective that is of the protest movement or whether that was something that was, you know, obviously you have a large group of people, how easily can you control the messaging that comes from everybody involved in it? Uh, but it certainly gave opportunity for the government and their supporters to then use this idea of Khalistani terrorism as a way of dismissing the protests, which aren't really about religion at all. Um, so it's the it's the language that Modi's government seems to use to delegitimize opponents um, and there's also been some, uh, reading some accounts of the protests, that there have been uh, accusations on social media suggesting that many of these so-called Sikhs are actually Muslims. And so they say, oh, look how they're praying in this way. And uh, this is in indicating that uh, even the, the very much more reviled community for this uh, uh, Hindutva approach, uh, Muslims are somehow infiltrating this notionally Sikh community of protesters. I, think that's, I find it all fascinating. It, it really also illustrates the influence of colonialism on the category of religion in India to where they seem to be able to make these distinctions between people as this is Sikh, this is Muslim, this is Hindu. And that's all fairly recent, you know, in, you know, since um, in the last 100 or so years. And that these markers are now, you know, been placed into kind of bounded categories that aren't overlapping. Whereas in daily life in the Punjab, there's a lot of overlap in practice and in communities, or at least there was. Um, I think that the kind of Hindu nationalism might be also pushing minority groups to identify more strongly as minorities as well, and um, with their own identity and culture distinct to their fellow Punjabis who might be Hindu or Muslim. Uh, I was just yeah. thinking about um, professor of uh, political science at my university, Alexander Lee, who I, I heard him once say at a uh, panel about Indian politics that he said, in some ways we think of India as a country, but perhaps we should think of India as something analogous to the European Union, multiple constituent states with extreme cultural diversity within it. And in some ways it's, if you if you approach it that way, Punjabi nationalism or this idea of a separatist movement, it's almost like a, well, I don't want to compare it to Brexit. That's too simplistic of a comparison. But it is interesting, this idea of India is, exists as a country, but it's also a federation of smaller states. And so obviously we were describing Sikh, um, Sikh objections to the government for, coming from Punjab. But I would be curious to know of other strikers, which regions they're coming from. And this speaks to the the immense complexity and fascination of Indian politics. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. Um, the, the 
as a notional secular state, and very professedly so, uh, it, it, it doesn't play that in how it approaches things. And I'd say now, I was about to say, as, as though that were not a feature uh, built right into its inception, right, from uh, its independence from British rule, uh, the religion question led to all these d- discussions about where those boundaries of India ought to be drawn. Um, but yes, it is. It, it would be deceptive to, to limit it to that question when there's so much else that's a, a part of animating where people's solidarities are and where their allegiances are uh, and how they vocalize their opposition. And I do find that, I mean, it's, I guess maybe there's an extent to which when your government nominalizes its opposition in religious terms, if you are seeing yourself in opposition to the government, you play that card yourself because that's what you're dealt. Right. Yeah. Lots to think about in there for sure. And uh, maybe we should see about wrapping the conversation up. Is there any other comments we wanted to make about this? Or actually, I'm forgetting, uh, Dan, you had another story that you were contemplating. I did, uh, I did have another this. story. Um, uh, it's interesting earlier with Suzanne talking about the, the positive versus negative tone in climate or in talking about climate change in the environment. And so we've just sort of done the negative. Well, I don't want to say negative, but obviously the, um, the farmers are up against it, uh, struggling against the government in India. So now for a slightly more optimistic article, Um, It was from the American climate magazine Grist, and it's called How One Woman's Big Bold Idea is Making Climate a Moral Issue for Jews by Claire Elise Thompson. And the article talks about the Big Bold Jewish Climate Fest, which was held virtually in January on the Jewish holiday of, or I don't know if it's a holiday per se, but the day of Tu Bishavat, which is celebrating the new year for trees. And it's this idea of aligning climate change with climate change activism very much with Jewish heritage. And so a a good portion of the article is written by the festival organizer, Lisa Colton. And she mentions that we need to understand our role and our voice in a larger conversation and make sure that we're connecting to other communities that are affected by the climate crisis and have authority and power to help drive solutions. So essentially what she's talking about is interfaith action that's rooted in Judaism to address climate change. Now, how this connects to Joe Biden is um, talking in the Biden article I mentioned earlier, there's a discussion of him citing Augustine for making an imperfect society better. And a religion professor that is quoted in that article talks about this idea of using Augustine as this model of, okay, Christianity doesn't rule the whole world. We must collaborate with others. So isn't it interesting that we have Biden talking about a pluralistic approach to climate change? And now here with the big, bold Jewish climate fest, Ms. Colton talking about the idea of multiple communities coming together to work on climate change. And so it's this idea of a liberal, politically liberal movement on climate change within Judaism and also making Judaism an explicit part of the conversation. Because I think oftentimes um, the rhetoric is dominated by Christianity in the United States when talking about fixing the world. Uh, So it was a very, very interesting article to read. Another thing Colton mentions is that Um, exit polling in the 2020 election showed that American Jews ranked climate change and COVID as the issues that they found most important. Yeah, it's interesting, this um, Tubish Shavat, I think it was connected to the notions of the tree of life, and now it's a literal tree of giving life Mm -hmm. um, in the different iterations over, you know, with contemporary um, concerns um, within traditional frameworks. 
Yeah, well, I, I guess, and just, I mean, especially in how you were describing it, Dan, it's just that, as I was saying earlier about how, you know, regardless of your religion, you need to eat. And so your uh, solidarities with farmers come down to your, your requirement for food. Uh, in this regard, the planet we live in is the planet we live in. And regardless of your, uh, your religion, your dominational uh, connection, if you see the climate as an emergency that threatens you and your children, then you act with those who... Um, are willing to act on it. I had a, a student uh, in our master's program uh, doing a dissertation just this uh, past summer on Muslim and environmental activism. And uh, again, just this, uh, how people draw on, when they draw on their faith, particularly to justify action. We certainly see that a large part of environmentalism doesn't need uh, a faith basis to justify the action that it wants to take on climate change. Uh, but there are people who do and, and see that as a calling and a mission and that there are various sources they can draw on uh, to pull it together. I wonder if you, you sense that there's any potential for conflict if uh, people scratch too much at the, 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 the surface reading of it, which is, you know, God wants us to look after this planet that God has given us um, and start looking into how those could create complex uh, ruptures in the, the solidarities that are emerging. It certainly could. I mean, well, any movement's going to break over tactics, and I'm sure that will come up in interfaith discussions about climate change as well. But I also don't want to overstate that the article, um, it's not exclusively about interfaith action. I mean, I think that's a th sort of a subtext theme there, but it's an article very much rooted in Jewish approaches to climate change and also this idea of an ongoing struggle. Um, Colton, the conference organizer, talks about um, and she says, it's a Jewish principle that each of us is not obligated to complete the work, but neither are we free to desist from it. And I think philosophically, that's interesting to distinguish from sort of Christian rhetoric of reaching an end, a fixed endpoint, this, you know, whether it's the second coming, this utopian narrative. And uh, so I, I think it's a very interesting article for talking about rooting climate change deeply in a Jewish perspective, which means slightly di different philosophical reference points. Also the importance of ritual and building an, an environment where everyone feels welcome. And I mean, of, co of course you get that in other religions as well, but I thought it was distinctive. Um, mm. It's the first article I can remember seeing in a long time that took Judaism and Jewish climate thought, even of just a liberal strain with that much seriousness. Mm. Yeah. That's a good way to end this discussion. Yeah. yeah, thanks for bringing it to us. So, and thanks uh, to you for listening to Discourse. This is where the Religious Studies Project uh, looks into news events uh, of the month, I guess. And I want to thank Dan Gorman, a doctoral candidate at University of Rochester, and Suzanne Owens from Leeds Trinity University. And myself, uh, Michael Munnick at Cardiff University. Uh, we've been the ones bringing you this conversation today, but uh, every month uh, a new set of people will be joining to speak. So thanks for your continuing interest and support of the Religious Studies Project. And thanks to Dan and Suzanne for joining the conversation today. Uh, thank you for chairing. Thank you. The RSP is sponsored by the BASR, NAASR and the IAHR and is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation. Find out more at religiousstudiesproject.com. Brought to you by editors Brianne Fallon and David McConaughey and founding editors Chris Cotter, that's me, and David Robertson, that's the other guy. Our features are edited by Rebecca Barrett-Fox and Lauren Osborne and our Opportunities Digest by Ella Buck. Audio editing by Alex Matthews, 
podcast transcription by Andy Alexander and Savannah Finver, and social media managed by Ray Radford and Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon affiliate links or donating at patreon.com backslash project RS. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, iTunes, and other portals. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.